1: This is a crowd podcast.
2: Joseph Stalin, Malin Hey, that works. Two Russian leaders in a row, Katie. Two, too many. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of We Didn't Start the Fire. The podcast that's history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places and moments that shaped our world. The ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up and knocking them down. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, you ready to start some fires?
3: I am. Uh, I'm starting a fire today of, of knowledge with some Tinder provided by a guest who knows much more about this topic. We'll get to her in a minute. But first of all, the topic, Malenkov, who the hell is that? What is that? Turns out it's the leader who kind of popped in Right after Stalin popped his clogs, and officially, he was only large and in charge in the Soviet Union for a total of nine days. I mean, that's the same length as Cher and Greg Allman were married. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess in Hollywood terms, pretty good. He did linger on for a few more years after that. But I didn't even know anything about him until you tipped me off to that movie.
2: The Death of Stalin, Armando Iannucci. So this movie I watched once, Katie, and it sort of shaped my perception of everything that happened in this period, which is both good and bad. It's good because it's an amazing film. But it turns out it's not entirely accurate. It's not an actual historical document. It turns out it's a film.
3: Uh, turns out it's just complete mucky yard, ER, just <laughs> storytelling silliness. Um, I did watch it as well. And it gave me a flavor to savor. But we have to get into the nitty-gritty of the facts and figures. And that is why today we have wheeled in Dr. Natalia Chernyshova. She's the senior lecturer at the University of Winchester's Department of History. And she also specializes in Belarus and the late Soviet post-Stalin
1: era, which is exactly what we need you to tell us about. Welcome, Natalia. Well, thank you very much. And it's lovely to be here. Um, yes, Malin Kofa is this Uh Interesting person who seems very uninteresting at all, um, and then um, all of a sudden he is uh, number one. Um, he stays number one in both in party and in the state for uh, a few days, and and then he gallantly steps aside um, to let the others take some of the charge, although he doesn't relinquish all of his power.
3: Yeah, so he was just thrust into the spotlight, as far as I could tell, when Stalin suddenly died. what Can you give us a sense of the snake pit of skullduggery that was happening as he
1: emerged as the party head? Sure. We often think of Stalin as being the sole dictator, one man in charge of the largest country in the world. But actually, Stalin did not work alone. He worked with a team. And his team, the men, and they were all men um, who were closest to him, they were no nobodies. They were very powerful men in their own right. Each of them had a, a, an important brief uh, to look after. Um and Stalin consulted them and discussed things with them, however strange it might seem to us. Um, sometimes this was in, in the office, and in the Kremlin, but very often it was over drunken parties uh, or over a movie. Stalin loved uh, watching films. So the membership of this group changed over time. Um, but by the time Stalin dies, this is a, a, a big four group. Um, Malenkov is one of them. There's also Beria, the chief of the secret police, a very powerful man. Um, then there is um, uh, uh, Bulganin and uh, finally Khrushchev.
2: Khrushchev. <laughs> Thank you. <It's> always the <laughs> a a, a to little guy. The yeah, <laughs> Not very
1: important in the large <laughs> scheme of things. That's why I forgot. Thank you. <laughs> and Khrushchev.
2: Can you give us an idea, Natalia, of what this man looks like because he is played in the film death of Stalin by jeffrey tambor who looks both incredibly pale and shifty and katie's got like i don't know if it's a toupee or he said his hair dyed, but he's he's not an impressive man is no he? he's, he's kind of
3: creepy looking he has purple lips it's weird
2: wears well, a weird white suit as well
3: yeah yeah so we're just trying to get a sense of what's the real deal with this guy
1: all well, right. right. I think uh, in that film, um, yet again, we, we don't quite get the real Malenkov because Malenkov was bigger. He was really? actually quite fat. At some point, Stalin began to tease him about losing his human appearance, you know, and saying, you need to lose some weight. I wouldn't you want to be teased to by Stalin. <laughs> no, no. That's the start <laughs> no, of the end, isn't it? No. Uh, meanwhile, plying Malenkov with food and wine and, and harder liquor. Um, so, so Malinkov um, uh, g- g- kind of goes around looking a little bit like a woman. He has very broad hips. He's got a very sort of feminine face. And uh, one of his uh, colleagues, who wasn't very fond of him, calls him Malania, which is a, a female name like Mary or Megan, Um and, and tease they all tease him about his uh, uh, being overweight. He was always a plump guy. But as someone said that, you know, underneath those rolls of fat, there was a, a lean and hungry man waiting to get out. Oh. Of the, I thought that mm-hmm. description was quite good. Um, he was happily married um, mm-hmm. to uh, a, a very strong-minded woman who at some point after the war um, was billed as the most powerful woman in, in Moscow. Was she? She, she was in charge of a Moscow... Um, energy institute she was the the, the rector or, or head of that and um they met on on a propaganda train during the civil so romantic, war <laughs> how romantic <laughs> those are. they were, they lived together for more than half a century had three kids but were never married formally that is they never mar- uh, registered their marriage it was the thing the Bolsheviks did. They, they kind of, they, they were, you know, modern people. They, they were above that bourgeois yes. notion of marriage. So, uh, but they were, you know, very a, a very happy couple in the sense that they worked and, and they stayed together. And Malenkov clearly cherished. He was being teased that he, um, you know, enjoyed being led by Stalin, by Beria, by uh, Khrushchev, and even by his wife. Ah. So.
3: Well, maybe that's what made him such a valuable team player because, you know, not everybody can be the big dog on campus. What was he like? We have a sense of what he looked like, but what was his kind of style of interaction,
1: communication, how he spoke? Well, he was very well spoken. Someone said that he had the best Russian of them all. Um, and this is because he was quite well educated, actually, especially when compared to some others, who, who like Stalin. Stalin wasn't very well
3: educated, is that right?
1: Mm, not quite. No, Stalin had a good uh, a good run of, a, of a, a Russian seminary back in Georgia. Oh, okay, he was uh, even writing poetry in his young <laughs> days. Who knew Stalin was a poet? He was a romantic. Um, they were not bad. The, those poems. Really. Um, but he abandoned them in in uh, Decided, favor of revolutionary yes, struggle. <laughs> in in favor of opening a couple of gulags, a chain of gulags. Yeah, <laughs> eventually that's how his career panned out. Um, but Malenkov was was very um, sort of fond of intellectual company as well. You know, his family uh, had you know dinners with people who were academics, professors, not least because of who his wife was in, in her work. Um, he was well read. Um, he insisted on giving good education to his children. He taught them himself and read them poetry, even during the most difficult moments of his career when he, during the war and he'd come home tired, but he'd still find time to read poetry to them. That's nice, isn't it, Katie?
2: Mm. When I've been reading about him, Katie, sometimes I get the sense that Malenkov is a mere pen pusher. He seems to be like a career um, bureaucrat. And then there's other instances that you read about and you think, oh my God, this man is murdering scum. <laughs> so what's the truth there, Natalia?
1: That's an excellent question and a very difficult one to answer. Um, probably more of a bureaucrat than a psychopath. But the problem is that in the Stalin era, um, in the late 30s and, and beyond, that is uh, bad enough. It is enough to be uh, obedient, loyal, uh, no-difficult-questions-asked bureaucrat to participate in a bloodbath. Um, He was highly efficient. This is how he got into Stalin's field of vision. He was working in the office of the Central Committee uh, and was very good at what he did um, and got increasingly promoted um, to to more and more responsibility. Um, Molotov remembered him, another old comrade of Stalin who outlived him by some time. Uh, Molotov remembered him... As uh, a telephone man, he said, um, someone who was very good at getting information, a good implementer, very efficient. But Malenkov's political strategy was that he kept quiet. Uh, he didn't say much. Uh, he didn't take initiative all that much. He listened uh, and took careful note of everything Stalin said. In fact, he turned. He would turn up to these parties in Stalin's um, at Stalin's dacha or, or in in his Kremlin apartments with a notepad, which said, uh, the instructions of comrade Stalin. And he would take important instructions of of Stalin uh, down um, in in his notepad. So he was always prepared. Um, And he was not personally ambitious. This was quite clear. Some some of his colleagues thought he was weak. Um, And that was also helpful. Being non-threatening was a good thing. It was a good survival strategy.
3: Natalia, we got a belly full of Stalin last week from our guest Alex Halberstadt, whose grandfather worked for Stalin as a bodyguard, uh, lived to tell the tale, most unusual. But I was wondering if you could elaborate on this whole party scene that
1: Stalin had. Like, what went down at the dacha? Well, they were an ordeal for the team members. Uh, It might sound so innocent to us, you know go watch a film with Stalin and, and then maybe have a nice dinner uh, not quite um, i would
2: be panicking already I think <laughs> <at
1: the moment>. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, first of all they, they, all of these things take place very late at night if not to say early in the morning so they were exhausting after a day's work sometimes at weekends and then the, the families would kind of sign and think oh this is our one chance to see our, our husbands and fathers and, and, and that's not going to happen um, but increasingly those parties became more, more and more debauched um, and partly th-
3: What just oh, like hedonistic drinking and eating
1: yeah, and th- this this was Paul a- girls no no, no Paul no. girls right. although Stalin Cool boys <laughs> no no Stalin was very prudish um he hated for example uh, any hint of nudity on in film oh. uh, on screen he got once he uh, saw a, a foreign film that the minister of cinema showed <laughs> chose for him secret copy a uh, secret copy and he uh, and there was a, a, a naked or semi naked woman on screen and stalin walked out and shouted at uh, the minister saying what well, are you trying to turn us into a brothel wow. uh, and the minister of course you know packed his bag and prepared to go um <laughs> but, the end of it? but but it was all right it turned out to be all right um but stalin Absolutely tolerated zero, um, you know, hint of sexuality on screen. Uh, but he did make his guests dance, um, and his daughter. Um, so Khrushchev remembers being, you know, forced to dance this Ukrainian dance, gopak, which is darn difficult to do because you squat and throw your legs out from oh on. yeah
3: it's like the classic like it's the classic. thing where you kind of like keep bouncing up and down and kicking out either leg. Oh. hard on the quads tom very it's like a sort of squatting
2: <gasps> can can isn't it the
1: squatting can can there you go <laughs> But you can just picture Khrushchev, who was getting round and round himself, uh, being forced to do this. He did not enjoy it. Um, he also once told, um, I think, Molotov to dance with one of the Polish visitors, a, a Polish dignitary from the Communist Party. Um, and, and they did duly. Uh, and they saw it as a good opportunity, actually, to exchange a few quiet words that they preferred not to be overheard. Ah. So,
3: so, so in between the huffing and the puffing and the and the forced squatting It was a waltz. <laughs> yeah. oh, it was a waltz. It was a waltz. <laughs> this is so weird. So all these men are waltzing with each other. Is it a sense is he trying to humiliate them as well or is he just strictly very entertained by old school dancing?
2: I <laughs> just a strictly fan.
1: Strictly, yeah. strictly he, Stalin. Um, <laughs> A little bit of both, because to him to humiliate others would be highly entertaining. Uh, so humiliation served two purposes. Um, one is to amuse Stalin in his old age, um, but the other is to keep them on their toes and not to let anyone think that they were beyond approach or safe with Stalin. Uh, but there was another reason for these very uh, excessive drunken parties. Um, Stalin encouraged them to drink as much as, as they could take and, and often more than they could take. You know, A lot of them would end up in the bathroom or being carried by their bodyguards home. Um, but the reason for that was Stalin hoped, apparently, that when drunk, they would blurt out something that they wouldn't otherwise they they would be too cautious to guard it when they're sober but when they're drunk they would be themselves so again his sort of anxiety his fear of enemies his fear of being betrayed is always there always in the background and his party is a part of that
2: it seems to me katie that in that mad struggle when stalin dies that mad struggle to take over You've got all these massive characters, and the, if there was sort of bookmaker's odds at that point, people mm-hmm. are, are whacking down a fair amount on Khrushchev and people like that. And then Malenkov Barbaria
3: is a as well. barrier, a
2: dirty barrier. Yeah. And it's almost like Malenkov is the, the sort of the horse that no one <clears throat> even looks at, who just coasts up, and then everyone's like, oh my God, it's Malenkov.
3: Yeah, he is a little bit of a dark horse. Um, I, that's the part that I don't quite understand, because you kind of assume that... Uh, these testosterone-fueled, perhaps desperation-fueled, egotistical would-be dictators are going to be muscling to the fore. And how is it that Malenkov ends up amongst this
1: cohort of sharks being in charge? There are two things at play here, I think. One is Malenkov is not a complete nobody. He might seem so to us from the perspective of many, many years. Since and we know how things played out, um, but at the time, um, since about mm, late forties, early fifties, I would say he was increasingly being seen. Um, as potential successor to Stalin. Uh, And especially when Molotov and Mekoyan fall out of favor with a dictator, he becomes number one. Stalin gets old, um, you know, in the last few years before he dies, and he uh, gets too old, for example, to chair the Council of Ministers, which is the government uh, of the Soviet Union. Malenkov takes over. He passes the baton to Malenkov. And this wasn't exactly a fun job because (laughs) there was one time when uh, Malenkov was chairing the meeting, a meeting of um, the council of ministers and Stalin suddenly began to talk about how he's old and tired and he should probably retire and Malenkov just nearly died in his chair. You know, what do I say? How do I take it from here? Fortunately for Malenkov, the whole room exploded in shouts: No, you can't retire. Right. What will we do now? And so Malenkov <laughs> could breathe again. Yes. Um, but those were scary moments. But he is becoming increasingly the first among equals. The second point that is really important to understand about these few years after Stalin's death is that um, the team have uh, bec- the team are remarkable at um, sticking to this principle of collective leadership. After Stalin's death, they're very successful at it, and you'd think they'd be jostling for power and uh, um, uh, hunger for one person to, to rise out of their midst. But actually. Um, The last years of Stalin's life conditioned them to work as a team much better than all the previous decades because Stalin was starting to pick them out um, uh, for elimination and they felt it. And so they closed in their ranks. For example, when Mikoyan and Molotov fell out of favour with Stalin, um, Stalin didn't want to see them. He um, stopped inviting them to his parties and Molotov and Mikoyan were very disturbed by this. But the team... so. Beria, Khrushchev, Malenkov, they all decided to help them out and tip them when Stalin would have a gathering and they would turn up uninvited. Mm. And Stalin got really mad and started shouting at the rest of the team, stop telling them where I am. And then he had a birthday party. Mikoyan and Molotov are not invited. After a lot of consultation, the others tell them, just turn up. They turn up uninvited at Stalin's party. Stalin behaves quite civilly. He ushers them in, he welcomes everyone, he's in a good mood. When the party is over, he holds the other guys through the coals and says, no more, enough is enough. Don't tell them where I am, I don't want to see them, they're not my comrades. <laughs> and this was an act of defiance. But they probably did it, and most likely they did it, because they felt we need to close ranks, safety in numbers, we have to work as a team. And that spirit carries after Stalin's death because they are terrified of what will happen when Stalin dies. Will there be panic? Will there be anarchy? And they're so obsessed with having this, you know, collective team uh, spirit communicated to the others that then when they all arrive in their cars um, to a public event or, or, or a gathering, they time the opening of the car doors so that they would all come out at once and nobody can perceive one as being the main person, the wow. most important thing. Partly this is self-preservation. Uh, partly this is the political culture uh, from which they came out. Party takes precedence. Even Stalin never said he was above party. the party. Um, there are two exceptions, of course. One is Beria and the other is Khrushchev. Beria is quickly got rid of. Khrushchev um, plays the collective leadership role for a bit, but Malenkov certainly is happy and contented to play it along for quite some time.
3: Do you think there's an element of them just feeling like, Phew, at least we're not going to be, you know, have a knife in the back, you know, shot in the back of the head late at night? Like, he's just quite happy to do whatever it takes to just keep the whole apparatus going? Is that
1: the idea? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a huge sense of relief. Um, Molotov and Mikoyan are are very, they're very sad that Stalin is dead. They all cry, except perhaps Beria. Um, Beria never cries Beria never cries
3: But is, are they really sad? I mean, what are, they, what are those tears about? I mean, is it <laughs> gratitude? It's, it's a
1: mixture of feelings People are complex And, and these yeah. people are certainly very complex um, Stalin had been there for them He had been a loyal patron mm. uh, for most of their times um, and they find it very difficult to imagine life without Stalin. So it's
3: just like a codependent relationship where they're they're kind of like locked
1: into the devil they know, Stockholm syndrome. Yes, to to a great extent it is, and and it's not just that because they're afraid of him, but because they do admire him a great deal. They do think he was the greatest. They do think he was wonderful. Again, all perhaps except Beria. And soon enough, Khrushchev comes to a different point of view too. Um, but. Um, But they're also very worried um, about a new Stalin, one of them becoming Stalin. And this is precisely one of the reasons why Beria is dispatched so quickly. Oh,
3: because they think that he has the potential... He has down. the
1: potential, but also he has the thirst. It's very obvious that he's oh, losing God. no time uh, in becoming number one. And he takes all kinds of initiatives, policy initiatives, that basically he's treading on their toes as, as party man because he is just chief of security. But he begins to dismiss people, to appoint people, and this is always the prerogative of the party. So they get very worried about Beria. Um, And he's also becoming quite dismissive of them um, and and mocks them, he's very sharp-witted. So um, Beria is a dangerous man, besides he's in charge of the security forces uh, and and he has a file on all of them. Sometimes Stalin said he had a file on him. Smart guy. Wow.
2: So, what happens at his little interregnum, where Malenkov is in charge, why does it come to an end so quickly?
1: In the nine days? Yeah. Uh, they just get together and redistribute the posts to to uh, prevent someone becoming too powerful. And to Malenkov, they say, look, you can't be head of the party and head of the state at the same time. And he's all right with that, is he? He's completely all right with that. Um, in very fact, very it's,
2: un-Stalin like that
1: behavior. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> going to take
2: all your power away and just be, oh yeah, great, fantastic, crack on.
1: <laughs> this is partly a plan hatched by Malenkov and Beria together. And uh, Malenkov... Um, it, it perhaps is not feeling too badly done because um, at that point in the Soviet Union, being in charge of the government is a more powerful position than being in charge of the party. And no one is appointed the general secretary of the party just yet. Uh, it's only a few months later that Khrushchev is made the first secretary of the party. And then he makes the party his stronghold and and, and, uh, turns it into a powerful position. But Khrushchev is nowhere near the leadership position. It's the main three guys, Malenkov, Beria, and Molotov, who are seen as the most important people at Stalin's death, and and they ride that way for quite some time.
2: Katie, I need a couple of minutes to process all that stuff. Shall we have some quick adverts?
0: Hey, how you doing? My name is Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the voice guy, and I just want to tell you about a new podcast called Death of a Film Star. It's from the makers of Death of a Rock Star, and it's really good. We've got episodes about Heath Ledger, Chadwick Boseman,
1: Marilyn Monroe, and Robin Williams. You've seen them tell incredible stories, so now it's time for us to tell theirs. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. Honestly, do it now. It'll be worth it.
3: I'm wondering about how Malenkov escaped being condemned for his senior role in The Purges. Uh, people must have thought he was a hypocrite for, for halting The Purges once Stalin was dead, or did he just pin the blame on Beria? How did he they all, that? They all
1: did. Beria was extremely convenient as a scapegoat. Ah. Uh, so Beria gets arrested very quickly. In the summer, he's locked up. Uh, by the end of the year, 1953, he's dead. But uh, Beria becomes this really handy scapegoat. Of course, the chief of secret police was, mm. uh, was the one who did it all. And uh, for some time, he's even blamed as influencing Stalin negatively. Um, but... Another convenient scapegoat on which they come to pin all the crimes is, of course, the dead man himself, mm. Stalin. Um, this is the conventional idea, the conventional kind of uh, perception is that the um, stalinization begins in 1956 with Khrushchev's secret speech. In fact, it begins almost within days of Stalin's death um, at one important party meeting of the Central Committee, Malenkov, is the first one to use the phrase "the cult of personality," not in reference to Stalin. This we have to tread very carefully because people are still in mourning. Uh, but um, the penny is dropped. And then a few months later, in the summer, um, Malenkov again uses this phrase now in reference to Stalin, Stalin's cult of personality. Um, So gradually, the case is building against Stalin very carefully, very gingerly. Um, They also stop mentioning Stalin. The name of Stalin disappears from newspapers, from the press, from public commemorations. A year since Stalin's death, Uh, the year's anniversary of Stalin's death, goes unmarked. Shocking so the Soviet Union. Amazing. This is how quickly it moves. But eventually, even that is not enough. Um, they have to go bigger. They have to talk about uh, the scale of the terror or some of it. They never do reveal the full truth. Um, they have to talk about Stalin's crimes more forcibly. And Khrushchev comes around to the idea fairly quickly within a year or two that if he takes initiative on those revelations, he can benefit from it politically. And right. he does.
3: It's all in timing and context, isn't it? And, of course, just to recap, none of them were in a real hurry scurry to get the doctor in when Stalin was lying on the floor dying of a stroke. So, um, you know, they they seized an opportunity.
1: Yes, but they had some difficulties. (laughs) One difficulty was that they were afraid. They were so afraid to be wrong about the fact that Stalin was ill and dying um, that it took a long time for them to fully realize that um, actually we probably do need to call a doctor. Uh, and just to illustrate this, when uh, the bodyguards who discovered Stalin's body on the floor and lifted it and uh, and put him on the sofa, um, when the bod- when these bodyguards called the, the Big Four, so Bulganin, Malenkov, Khrushchev, and Beria and they arrived at the Dacha. they were afraid to come in. Uh, it was quiet in the, in the study, Stalin's study, there were no noises, and they were just terrified. What if we come in and we wake him up? And the bodyguard said, he seems to be sleeping, but we're not sure. And so they decided that two of them will come in, because four would make too much noise, but two would risk it and come in. And the lot fell on, guess what, Barry and Malenkov. Now, Beria marched right in, but Malenkov discovered that his shoes were squeaking. They were new shoes and they were making noise. And so he took them off and held them under his arms. And with his shoes under his arms, he tiptoed into Stalin's office. And they thought he was just asleep. So they came out, berated the bodyguards, said, stop spreading panic um, and left and went home. And then the bodyguard said, no, no, he's really, uh, he does need a doctor, we think, and they reconvened uh, next day. But there was another problem. There were no good doctors in Moscow because the doctor's plot meant that all the best doctors, and Stalin's personal doctor included, had been arrested. So who do we call? Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, conversation in the film uh, about do we get a good doctor, do we get a bad doctor, um, in the film Death of Stalin is is actually uh, you know has a point it, it does have a point um they had a dilemma
2: i can't help but feel katie that that has come back to bite stalin on the ass there
1: the old uh, doctor's
3: plot yeah. that he was he was uh drumming up this anti-semitic hoo-ha against perceived enemies and uh
2: and there's no doctors left to treat him when he's
3: quote sleeping yes. unlucky there is
1: poetic justice in yeah. that yes it's
3: a lot of poetic justice I'm interested in uh, the demotion of Malenkov uh, that happened, I guess, gradually, yet inexorably once he was supposedly in charge. Um, At one point, Khrushchev ends up reassigning Malenkov to manage a hydroelectric plant in Kazakhstan, which he ends up doing for the next three decades. Yikes. That's not a career opportunity.
1: (laughs) Malenkov kind of deserved that, uh, because this was his punishment uh, for taking part in the anti-party coup. Uh, That was really not a coup against the party, but a coup against Khrushchev in 1957. Ah, So this was
2: his revenge on Khrushchev?
1: This was his punishment, yeah. So tell us about this coup. Well, the coup... um, was not just the handiwork of Malenkov alone, ever a team player, uh, but it (laughs) was the entire presidium. In fact, the bitter truth for Khrushchev was that the entire presidium uh, of the Communist Party, and this was the new name for Politburo, um, was against, the majority of the presidium was against him. Um, And they wanted, uh, they were not sure what they wanted to do with Khrushchev, uh, but they summoned Khrushchev to tell him off and to say that this cannot go on. And what they meant was that Khrushchev was increasingly um, a loose cannon to the collective membership leadership. He was acting too much on his own initiative. Um, uh, he was uh, embarrassing them also in public. He was being very crass, uh, sometimes offensive. Um, while Malenkov was still formally head of state uh, uh, and the premier, uh, Khrushchev was making uh, you know, foreign visits and, and giving speeches to uh, uh, foreigners and, 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 and to uh, sometimes domestic audiences as if he was the boss. Um, and they didn't like this one bit. Uh, and they confronted him. Uh, and they said this has to stop. But Khrushchev outwitted them. Uh, this was a brilliant stroke of political maneuvering. Uh, he basically demanded that the decision uh, on his fate is made by the Central Committee, which is a larger body of the political elite uh, of the Communist Party. And uh, the Presidium members couldn't argue their way out of it, and they agreed. Uh, and he was helped here by Mikoyan, who helped stall the proceedings because he wasn't sure that he wanted to, you know, Khrushchev to pay. So he stole a little bit. And in that time, Khrushchev, together with his comrade Zhukov, um, gathered all these party secretaries from the regions, from other national republics. They were flown in with military planes so that they could be at that meeting of the Central Committee. And they almost unanimously defended Khrushchev. And suddenly, the presidium... Malenkov and his team are on defense. Suddenly they're the ones being accused of going against the party, attacking Comrade Khrushchev and so on. And this is where Khrushchev um, yells at Malenkov, you have blood on your hands uh, oh. because of the Leningrad affair and so on. So there's this really heated sort of debate um, uh, where they implicate each other in Stalin's crimes, but Khrushchev wins um, and they get their punishment. So Molotov is dispatched to Mongolia as an ambassador. Um, uh, Kaganovich is also sent off to some, uh, a faraway post and Malenkov gets this hydroelectric power plant, which is at least in his line of profession. You know, he's deployed according to his... I can
2: imagine that education. being sort of put to him as he's sort of slumped in despair. Listen, Georgi, at least this is your line of work. Yes. Could be in Mongolia.
3: Chin up, <laughs> and also Tom. It's in it's his uh, local hood. I mean, that's where he was from originally. Is that right?
1: Uh, it's close. It's close to his local. It's it's Kazakhstan rather mm. than Siberia. But um, but it's also a, a lot better than a bullet to the head, yeah, which is exactly. what he would have got under Stalin. Um, so it was a quiet and perhaps um, too quiet life for some, but Malenkov seemed to have adjusted rather well to it. Um, he, nobody recognized him in the street when he came back to Moscow, but did, he did come back to Moscow. Uh, and, of course, he had the satisfaction uh, of watching Khrushchev being kicked out of his post, um, and he had the satisfaction um, of outliving Khrushchev uh, by some years, too, and shortly after Khrushchev's death, uh, he was given a nice apartment in Moscow, yeah. um, and where he lived with his life until um, 1988. What would you say, Natalia, that Malenkov's legacy is? Had he stayed in power, um, he probably would have taken more time to think things over than Khrushchev often did. He probably would have avoided some of his blunders. Uh, But perhaps he would have... Committed his own. Uh, it's hard to tell. Um, he would have been good as a counterweight to Khrushchev. Uh, one Russian historian, at least, seems to think so, um, because they complemented each other. One was a man of action; the other was a more slower, uh, more efficient, more careful bureaucrat. And they could have worked together as a team quite well, um, but they didn't. So, but perhaps when he was in in a significant position, Malenkov did. Um, exert this slight dumping effect uh, on things. And because he was not another barrier or another Khrushchev, perhaps that helped avoid uh, a much more difficult and much bloodier transition after Stalin's death. So perhaps we ought to be thankful for small mercies like that.
3: Natalia, I was a little mystified as to why Malenkov pops up in the lyrics of uh, We Didn't Start the Fire, because I feel like, okay, obviously Stalin's in there, um, makes sense that Khrushchev's in there, but Malenkov—I'd never even heard of him before this song. Do you think that his
1: place in the song is justified? Yes, I think so. Um, he's definitely a Stalin's man. Um, he also illustrates rather well some of the complexities of of Stalin's rule um, and the important t- transition um, from. Stalin Soviet Union to post Star- to the post Stalin Soviet Union um- What seems to us as a small period of no significance between Stalin's death and the rise of Khrushchev was in fact a very important period that could not be taken for granted at the time. And indeed, none of the leaders took it for granted. Um, And they, they were mighty relieved and really elated when they realized that they managed to avoid that anarchy, that life could go on after Stalin and indeed the Soviet Union could go on after Stalin. And Malenkov played a huge role in that.
3: Well, what about um, Billy's other options, though, out of this cast of clowns? like, Do you think that uh, there would have been somebody else more suited and more dramatic in the song, perhaps?
1: I think it would have been nice to uh, have a bit of barrier uh, in there because uh, he's also a very extraordinary person, Um, uh, very complex, uh, very, very intelligent, um, but also um, incredibly sinister. Um, You know, Billy uh, looks at it from... Uh, outside, right? Uh, So Berry isn't very visible to those who are looking at it from outside. In fact, to a lot of Soviet people, you know, Berry is not that prominent. I mean, he becomes quite prominent towards the end of Stalin's life and afterwards. But Malenkov becomes the face of the Soviet Union. So he's, of course, uh, part of the song. Uh, But my goodness, yeah, it, it, it's, it's great to have them because it also shows that Stalin wasn't alone uh, and that the story of Stalinism is a lot more complex than just one man uh, ruling all.
2: Natalia, thank you so much for taking what had been, I think to me and Katie, just a little missing jigsaw piece between the the two big dogs of Stalin and Khrushchev <laughs> and turning it into a beautifully nuanced and fully realised portrait.
1: Well, Thank you very much.
2: katie i have two questions for you after that amazing bit of chat from natalia my first question is you and i are at stalin's dasher and the vodka is flowing and the tunes are playing and stalin looks at you and goes dance what are you doing
3: Oh my gosh. Okay, my quads are primed. I am d- dropping into that squat, dropping that squat like it's hot. Uh, Sidekicks, uh, a little, some pony leaps, uh, and some, uh, n- nothing too tawdry or uh, y- saucy because I don't want Stalin to be embarrassed because, you know, he's a little bit of a prude. But I have to say that my show poodle skills would serve me handily, Tom. I think I would not be uh, purged anytime soon. What about you?
2: I think I would try, cause I'm not going to be able to do a traditional Georgian folk dance. I would probably end up doing a slightly muted big fish, little fish cardboard box move, because that's what I grew up with. <laughs> <laughs> and see how Stalin takes the rave culture.
3: Okay. But you know, the other thing that I'm thinking, Tom, is that you and I kind of look out for each other like even when we do these podcasts we kind of like check in and we make sure you know you're i definitely feel like you have my best interests at heart and i need you by my side so i think that we would team dancing we team dancing but also we would kind of fit in with that idea of looking out for each other to make sure that you know where one goes all goes yeah yeah. So when
2: I'm getting a little bit loose-lipped on the vodka, yeah. you're just saying, Tom, just come over here for a second. You yeah. just whisper, watch it, Fordyce. you Yeah. It for the chop.
3: 100%.
2: Okay, Katie, brilliant. Now, fast forward, say, 10 years. Unfortunately, you and I have been involved in a coup, and you are offered the choice of becoming the ambassador to Mongolia or running a hydroelectric plant in rural Kazakhstan. Which option are you taking?
3: Here's what I feel about my incipient ambassadorship. There's lots of clinking crystal tumblers filled with crushed ice and vodka. And I feel like that's a festive lifestyle that would suit me very well. So I would like that option, please. How about you?
2: Yeah, the hydroelectric plant sounds a bit dull, doesn't it? You're not going to look forward to Monday mornings in the hydroelectric (laughs) plant, are you? Evening soirees in Mongolia, they're not going to be the best, but it's still an evening soiree.
3: Yeah. And there's lots of ponies on the steps of Mongolia. So I think it'll be festive.
2: And Katie, what do we have coming up next week?
3: Next week, we have President of Egypt, Nasser. I know nothing about him. I'm ready to be informed and entertained.
2: Tremendous. And in the interim, if people would like another podcast to listen to?
3: Oh, uh, if you want another podcast to listen to, why don't you go and search for Unaccountable? It's all about police reform in America and trying to hold police accountable for their actions.
2: It's hosted by Allo Black and Ben Cohen, and each episode tells the story of an American citizen whose rights have been violated by the police, along with celebrity guests who are also fighting to end something called qualified immunity.
3: Why not be part of the change? Search Unaccountable and subscribe now.
2: And in the meantime, Katie, people can follow us. At Spread That Fire. Here's something else. We've got an email address, which is fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. What about if people listen to this and think either, hey, I know someone who'd be amazing on that lyric, or I would be amazing on that lyric.
3: You know what? That's a really good idea. So people, get on the interwebs and have a look at the lyrics that are coming up and see if perhaps you know someone who's a little bit of a pro in that area. Because like Stalin, we can't do all this on our own.
2: Oh yeah, and don't forget to subscribe.
1: Network, a place where you belong.
0: I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast.